Well, Father, thank you. That's really all we need to say is just thank you. Thank you for the fact that we call you Father. Thank you for uh, health that enables us to get here. Thank you, Lord, for, um, for a church that teaches the Word of God. Thank you for uh, men that will get together in the middle of the hectic week to open their Bibles uh, so that they can be equipped so that they can serve you uh, at the post to which they have been assigned. Thank you for the freedom to study the Bible. We have so many things here that we take for granted. Um, we, we, we live in a place that has been extraordinarily blessed. We have been given so much. Uh, we... Um, it's just, it's what we're used to. It's, it's, our, it's, it's our country, it's our existence. And it sort of becomes just second nature, and we tend to take so many of these things for granted. We don't mean to, but, but at times we do. So when we catch ourselves, we want to just stop and say thank you for all that we have. And some of us... Lord, have had some disappointments and some things have not gone our way, and when that happens, it kind of throws us off, and we, uh, we get frustrated and we get critical and we start to wonder why you allowed certain things to happen, where we're really looking at it from the wrong perspective. You have done so much, and if you have withheld something from us, it's for our good. We just can't see it right now. But we can look back over our lives and see things that you have withheld from us. And we were bitterly disappointed, but as time went by, we could see a new perspective. And we would pray and say, Lord, thank you for not giving to me what I ask you to give. We're all coming, Lord, from different uh, uh, circumstances. We're all coming from different places in life, and some of us are dealing with, uh, with difficult marriage situations. Some of us, Lord, are still out of work. Uh, it, 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 this has gone on longer than we anticipated. Uh, Lord, some of us are fighting depression, and we just can't seem to pull up out of this dark pit. We, we wake up in the morning, and it's there, and it surrounds us, and we're tired of it, and we don't we're just quite not sure what to do. I, I pray for each one of us, uh, Lord, that you would give us what we need. And in many cases, Lord, we don't even know what we need. We know what we would like, and we know what we want, but we don't know what we need. So we pray uh, the prayer that never fails as Jan Carone says, and that prayer is, thy will be done. And we're willing and content to rest in that. We ask you to teach us. We ask you to instruct us. We ask you, Lord, to maybe even surprise us by giving us something that would unlock um, 
a puzzle that would unlock a question that would give clarification to something we've been struggling with. We would pray with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Living lessons from dead kings. We've had a stretch uh, going back before Christmas and Thanksgiving when we broke uh, off for the, um, for the break. We, we've had a stretch of looking at four good kings. Uh, they were flawed and they had their problems and they had their issues. Um, tonight we're looking at a bad one. This guy is about as bad as it gets. He's in Second uh, Chronicles 28, and his name is Ahaz. Uh, you go in the subway, and you can order a, a tuna sandwich or a barbecue chicken sandwich or a, uh, a turkey sandwich. There's all kinds of sandwiches. This guy, th- this guy is sort of the bad sandwich king because he is sandwiched between a good king who is his father, Jotham, and he's also sandwiched on the other side by his son, Hezekiah, who was also a good king. So he's got a father who's a good king. He's got a son who's a good king. Um, he was one of the worst. In fact, um, he may have been the worst, the only one that really could compete with him to the degree of degradation and debauchery will be his grandson, Manasseh. Um, but I'm getting ahead of the game. We'll get to him. This guy is bad news, Ahaz. Uh, it is the story of a, uh, of a wasted life. It's the story of a ruined life. Uh, it's the story... Of a, uh, of a strong will. How many of you guys uh, feel, or have you ever been told um, you're strong-willed? Have you? Most of us. Yeah, I have. Um, a strong will can be a good thing when it's submitted to God. Uh, the best leaders that I've ever seen are the best followers. But guys who tend to be leaders tend to be strong-willed. Therefore, for the vast majority of us, if you've got a strong will and you ask God to use you, what's going to have to happen is God will take you through some experiences and he'll take you through some chapters in your life where you are going to have to surrender your will to his. You're going to have to bend your will to his. Uh, As as Jesus uh, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. There is a a place where we yield and where we bow. We'd like it to be this way, um, but it's not that way. and what God is dealing with is, is with our wills. To be a good leader, you must be a good follower. You must be a great follower. You must learn to submit. Um, so often in Christian circles, when you hear the term submission, it is 
pointed towards women. Because the Bible talks about a, a wife submitting to her husband. Uh, and there, and, and that's, that's in the scriptures. There's no question about it. But submission is not just a women's issue. Submission is a Christian issue. Uh, Christ can't be your Lord unless you're submitted to him. Uh, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, I believe in here, that years ago, when we, uh, uh, we we'd first moved uh, over to Coppell, um, I was headed out to teach a Bible study, and I got in the other car, and there was no gas, and I thought, well, I'll make it down to the gas station. I didn't, and I ran out of gas, and Mary had to come and get me, and I had the boys, and she was going somewhere with Rachel. So I got the two boys... And they're about, John and Josh are probably, I don't know, nine and six. And, 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 and I've got to be somewhere, and, you know, I'm behind. And I, I, I'm just driving like crazy down. I'm going to about 58 in a 30-mile zone in Coppell. And this car pulls up behind me, uh, and he had two options on his car that I didn't get on mine. <laughs> he had lights and a siren, and he turned them on. And the uh, guy pulled me over, and I thought, oh, great, now I'm really going to be late. And the uh, guy walked up, uh, officer walks up, and he asked for my license. And, and he said, uh, sir, can I ask you where it is you're in such a hurry to get to? And I think it was Josh who said, we're going to church. <laughs> and and uh, he saw my Bible sitting on the seat there. And I said, yeah, I'm actually going down to teach a Bible study tonight, um, about submitting to the uh, civil authorities that God has put in. <laughs> and the guy, and he laughed. The guy had to be a Christian, and he said, Aha. He said, Well, he said, If you promise to obey the scripture, <laughs> he said, I'll let you go. I said, Now that's what the Bible calls mercy. Because <laughs> I'm about as guilty as you get. And he said, eh, Just watch it, if you would. Um, now, when that guy pulled up behind me and turned on the lights and the siren, I could have looked in the mirror and thought, who does he think he is? I mean, you know, we're both citizens of this nation. I've got the same rights that he does. He's not any better than I am uh, under the law, and that's true. But, but in order for society to function, and in order to keep society from spinning off into anarchy and chaos, among equals, someone in any given situation, someone's in authority and someone has to submit. You guys are in the military. You know all about that. You guys that played ball, you know all about that. You get in a huddle and uh, you got all these guys that are strong-willed guys, you know? But you get in that huddle and, and whether it's... Uh, 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 Quincy Carter, or it's Aikman, or it's Staubach, whoever the quarterback is, they call the play, they call the shots. You see, someone among equals, someone's got to submit. That's the way it is. Uh, in many ways, the Christian life is learning to become a better submitter. Uh, the kings out of the 40 that we're studying, the eight that could be considered good were men that were in the process of learning to submit their wills to the Lord. The, the others never did it. They had no interest in it. And sadly tonight, 
we look at this guy by the name of Ahaz, uh, and we look at his wasted life and his ruined life, and we read his biography. He had a father who made a great impact. He had a son who made a great impact. Um, there's nothing good you can say about this man. And that, that is an unspeakable tragedy, and it's all because of his will. It's all because of the stubbornness. It's all because he wanted the world to revolve around him. He wanted to be the God of his own life. It's called self. Um, we're, we're, we're going to look at this guy's life, but before we do, I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Because in that passage of Scripture, Paul describes to us the process that takes place in the heart and mind of an individual who refuses to submit their will to God even though they know that God exists. This is going to be a backdrop for our study of Ahaz because this process that is going to be described for us in Romans 1.18 really uh, explains to us this guy's life. And, as, and as, if we had just jumped into a story We'd be reading it and shaking our head and saying, how can this guy, I mean, how could this guy do this? Well, we're going to get the explanation. Here's why this happens, and here is the mindset that men and women adopt that causes them to ruin their lives, to get on a path of destruction. God attempts to get their attention and to intervene and to circumstantially stop it and rescue them but even when he shows them goodness and mercy, they refuse to submit. Romans 1, 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every man who's ever lived on the face of the earth has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? is the question. You ever wonder about people in foreign lands that have never heard about Christ? Sure you have. And you think to yourself, if they've never heard about Christ, then how can they be judged? If they never heard about the Savior, how can they be judged? Well, we're going to get the answer here. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So what he's saying is, is that every person on the face of the earth knows that God exists because God has made the truth of himself evident to them. Verse 20, he's going to explain how this happens. There are two ways that every person knows that God exists. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Here's what he's saying. Every person on the face of the earth, uh, we're not talking about infants here obviously, but there is a point where there is a realization, not only a, a self-realization and self-awareness, but then you begin to look around and you begin to understand there is a God in heaven. 
I remember taking a course, um, uh, and, and Mary and I, we took the same course, and it was on, uh, you, you know, it was a course on Christian education and the different ages of kids and what they're dealing with. And they, this was at a, at a Christian school in Los Angeles, and they brought in a uh, professor from USC who was an expert in childhood development. This woman was an atheist, and she gave her lecture, and she, you know, was pretty good. She knew kids, and then there was a time for questions and interaction. And I'll never forget this. Uh, in the course of uh, the give and take and the Q&A, she made a statement. She said, you know, what is really imp- interesting to me, because personally I'm an atheist, is that I work with children all the time. I've worked with children for 30 years. I have never met a child who does not believe in God. I mean, she said, she, she, and, she, and really kind of, she was befuddled by it. I thought Romans 1.18. See, kids know. They, they know. Little kids know that God is there. They just know it. Uh, in the New York Times, two, three weeks ago on a Sunday, in the, one of those magazines they got inside it, there was a, I just thought of this, there was, a, in the, there was a, a, a column written by a lady whose husband is off serving in the military. She grew up in a Christian home, which she has rejected the truth of Christ. Um, but she has a little boy that's four years old, and, they're, um, and you know, he misses his daddy. And, um, and she's talking in the article about how he's coming to grips with this. And they were having dinner the other night. And um, after dinner, she was cleaning up, and then she, she couldn't find him. She went to look for him. And he was in his room, and he was going like this. And she said, son, what, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, mom. And he said, well, I was praying. But he knew she didn't pray. And, and she said, it struck me that he didn't feel the freedom to pray in our house because he'd never seen his father pray or he'd never seen me pray. Yet here he was praying. Um, it was really a fascinating article. And she went on to say, I, I wish I had the faith that he had. You know, little kids are just honest. You know, why little kids, this, this prophet says, I've never seen a child who doesn't believe in God. They know that God exists. There are two ways we know that God exists. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Uh, you study science, science ought to cause you to praise God. You study the human eye, that ought to cause you to praise God. Uh, you study the physiology, you study the central nervous system. Somebody put that together. If you don't believe that, there's something wrong with you. You're not being truthful. You're not logical. You're not rational. That makes absolutely no sense that time and chance could put you together. That time and chance can engineer the central nervous system. Where did DNA come from? So you see the stars at night. And for thousands of years, they navigated on the oceans by finding, by the stars. You see, because that is fixed, absolute truth, which doesn't exist, by the way, in our culture. But it's everywhere, fixed, absolute truth. And there's order, and there's symmetry, and there's engineering, because there is an engineer. And we see it through what has been made. We know he's there. Um, It's so clear that they are without excuse. 
So see, there are two ways that we know that God exists. Number one, we all know it in our hearts. Romans says, he, we know it because God made it evident. And then we see it in creation. Okay? So it says they're without excuse. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's why I made the statement that there are more fools per square inch on a university campus than anywhere else on the face of the earth. And they're such fools. They, many of them, quite frankly, couldn't make it in the real world. They're highly educated, but they're foolish. Why? Because they deny there's a God. Uh, they, they, they have become they're highly intelligent, but they're fools. And so we've had to develop a system for these people who are fools because they can't hold a real job, and so it's called tenure. Right? Tenure means you can get away with anything. You can say anything, you can teach anything, and there are no repercussions and there are no consequences. Tenure like that exists nowhere else in any other facet of society except in uh, the judicial system. Where once again, you'll find per square inch more fools than anywhere else except on the university campus. Isn't it amazing how this works? For even though they knew God, 21, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their futile heart was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's talking about the worship of idols there. Instead of worshiping God, they would worship idols. They'd worship, uh, they'd worship anything, anything. In India, you have people starving, starving to death, yet there's livestock everywhere. There are cattle that run freely in the streets. There are six, seven, eight, nine head of cattle right out in front of a house where there's a baby starving to death, but they can't touch the cow because the cow is God. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. See, what you believe in your heart will have consequences in your behavior. So they deny God in their mind, so as a result, they're into all kinds of sexual impurity and sexual immorality. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we got groups like Greenpeace. Um, now, you know, I, I'm all for clear water. You know, I'm all, you, you know what I'm talking about. We're, we're to take care of the earth. Romans 8 says the whole earth groans, the creation groans, waiting for the return of Christ. Because the whole creation's been marred by sin. Um, but we don't worship the creation, but there are people who do. We don't worship trees. There's some beautiful trees, but you know what? Trees are a renewable resource. Now, there's some old ones that are great, and you want to, hey, keep those suckers. They're worth it. But you know what? You've got to cut trees down because you've got to live. You know? 
I mean, it's just, see, we, we kind of lost our minds here. What we need to do is to have the power go out for about six months. And, and to have, you know, some kind of great uh, depression hit for about six months. And that infuses a lot of common sense back in people. Because when, it, when you're in Minnesota and it's zero um, under the sun lamp, and it's four to below outside, and there's no heat, and there's no electricity, uh, uh, you know what, you're going to go cut a tree down. <laughs> and you're going to go light a match. And there's nothing to eat. Because, you know, I mean, if it was that bad, you know what? You're, you're, you're going to go shoot an animal. You're going to go get a cow. Because you've got to eat and you've got to live and you've got to survive. We've got too much in this country. We've been given way too much by God, and as a result, we've lost our minds. Um, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The Supreme Court wouldn't like that verse, would they? But it tells the truth. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So you're going to believe the Episcopal Church or you're going to believe the Word of God? Now, there are a lot of Episcopalians that believe the Word of God, so they're getting ready to get a conservative Episcopal church going because this is their authority. But then you got others in that church. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And isn't it amazing that there are churches that fit that category? And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. There are churches in this community that don't acknowledge God. But they're churches. But see, they're really not churches. Why? Because, because their wills are against God. That's the issue. Because the, and just as they did not see fit in 28 to acknowledge God any longer. Now watch this. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. What a term. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is the process of deterioration that takes place in the heart and mind of an individual who knows that God is there, but who refuses to submit their will to the living God. Now, we look at Ahaz, uh, a tragic life who lived out Romans 1. 2 Chronicles 28. Um, uh, this, this guy, uh, Ahaz, I'll just tell you up front. This guy, uh, this guy started badly and he finished badly. Uh, his whole life was bad. 
His whole life was wicked. His whole life was evil. Uh, his whole life was, was, was a waste. Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. He was in the line of David, of course. Now, what destroyed this guy, and, and what brought this guy down? Um, what, what, we're we're going to get an explanation for what brought this guy down. And, and as I was looking at this, what I began to realize is that uh, what brought this guy down were uh, weapons of mass destruction. Not the ones we're thinking of in terms of our day, but there are spiritual weapons of mass destruction. There, there are weapons that will bring you down. There are weapons that will destroy your life. There are weapons that will ruin your life in the spiritual realm of things. And when we examine this guy's life, we're going to see weapons of mass destruction. Because wherever you see these weapons, people's lives are destroyed. The, there's a list of them beginning in verse 2. Um, the first one, weapon one, is he followed the wrong examples. When we study these kings, it's always interesting to note who they were influenced by. Who were the ones they followed? In verse 2, it says about Ahaz, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Do you see the word but there? There's a contrast between David living as David lived. You said, yeah, but David, David wasn't perfect. No, no one said he was perfect. But David had a heart. He, he was a man after God's own heart. Did he have flaws? Did he sin? Did he fall short? Yes, he did. But he loved God. But instead of following in the path of David, it says, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. If you remember uh, from our study, the kings of the north, there were 20 in the north after Solomon, 20 in the south, Judah after Solomon. This guy is one of the southern kings. None of the 20 kings of the north, none of them were good. All of them were wicked. All of them rebelled against God. He followed in the ways of the kings of Israel. So he followed the wrong example. Um, I'll throw something out to you. It's kind of interesting. When, uh, when you compare the ages, uh, jump up to 27. See chapter 27? Jotham was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years. Go down to chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years. Uh, then uh, you go to 29. Hezekiah, his son, became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years. When you start working all these kings and working the genealogies, it appears that Ahaz fathered Hezekiah when he was somewhere around 11 or 12 years old. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. And, and different scholars are trying to figure that out. So, you know, that's awfully young. You know, what about, you know, how, how can that be? That probably, hey, let me tell you something. This guy was evil. He started evil. You've got kids in our culture that are 11 and 12 years old that have lost their virginity. You see, that's what happens in a culture where God 
the truth of God is suppressed in unrighteousness. This guy started bad, he was bad halfway through, and he, and he ended bad. He emulated the wrong people. People. He had the wrong heroes. He, he had the, the, the wrong posters up on his wall. Uh, notice what it says. He also made, in verse 2, he also made molten images for the bales. Here's the second weapon of mass destruction that took this guy out. Uh, and, and namely, here's what it is. Uh, he violated the second commandment. The, the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is, God says, you shall make no graven images. God doesn't want an image of himself. You don't see any images in this room, do you? No. Why not? Because the Bible says there are to be no images. So we don't have icons, and we don't have uh, uh, all this stuff, and we, we, we don't have it. Because God is spirit. Um, we don't worship an icon. We worship God. When you get to heaven, you will not see God the Father. I remember teaching that years ago, and I got a lady really mad at me. She really got upset. She said, what do you mean we won't see? Well, you can't see. Now, we can see Christ because he's the God-man. But, but God is spirit. You know, the Bible talks about the arm of the Lord. Well, the, the, the Lord doesn't have an arm. He's spirit. That's what's called an anthropomorphism. Uh, anthropos meaning man, morphe meaning form. Sometimes God will be referred to in human form so that we can understand. The arm of the Lord, that's a figure of speech. The eye of the Lord. The Father doesn't have an eye. He doesn't, he, he's not like us. He's spirit, you see. So we don't make images of him. We worship him, though, in spirit and in truth. Uh, this guy violates, and did he know the Ten Commandments? Yes. He, right out of the blocks, he violates them. You violate the commandments knowingly, you're that's a weapon of mass destruction in your life. Let's go on. It gets worse. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. You can visit that today. It's the, it's the valley. If you go to Jerusalem, it sits up on a hill, and there are valleys around it. This is the valley that's on the south side on the west. It used to be the garbage dump. And not only was the garbage dump, and there were perpetual fires burning there, but it used to be where they would sacrifice their sons to the false gods. See verse 3? He burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. You talk about degradation. You talk about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is what the nations that God drove out of the promised land, the Canaanites, they burned their sons in the fire to show their allegiance to God. God never asked that. God said that's sin, that's wrong, that's wicked, that's evil. God said destroy them. And here you have a king sitting in Jerusalem, sacrifices his son in the fire, has them immolated to show his allegiance to these false idols. So how, and his father was a godly man. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. Uh, I read verse 4, and you know what I see about this guy? He basically established idol franchises all over Judah. You know how there are Starbucks everywhere you go? Wherever you went, 
This guy was setting up altars to false gods. He was influ- Remember what Romans said? That they not only do these things themselves, but they influence others to do them? That's what this guy was doing. Um, did he know the truth? Yeah. Did he submit to the truth of God? No. Why not? Because he didn't want to. Ernest Hemingway is one of the American heroes. Uh, He's got his own line of furniture out right now. And the sucker's dead. But somebody, you've seen the commercials on TV, haven't you? There's some furniture outfit, and they've got the Ernest Hemingway line. When I first heard that, I thought, what, have you got a blood-soaked coffee table with vomit on it? You know? Because the guy killed himself. And he was an alcoholic, and he would drink until he would vomit, and he would, you know, choke on his own vomit. Is that the Ernest Hemingway line? Oh, no, no. See, they romanticize it. They fantasize it. You know, Ernest Hemingway was a violent, reprehensible, wicked, by the testimony of his wives and his girlfriends, violent, a violent man, self-centered, a liar, Hated his mother. Was raised in Wheaton, Illinois. By Christian parents. Paul Johnson says his parents were, or they certainly seemed to be, healthy, industrious, efficient, well-educated, many talented, and well-adjusted to their society. Grateful for their European cultural inheritance, but proudly conscious of the way America had triumphantly improved upon it. They feared God and lived a full life. Dr. Hemingway was an excellent physician who also hunted, shot, fished, sailed, camped, and pioneered. Did that all with his son, by the way. He possessed and taught his son all the wilderness skills of the woodsman. His mother, Grace, was a woman of strong intelligence, powerful will, and many accomplishments. She was widely read, wrote excellent prose, skillful verse, painted, designed, and made furniture, sang well, played various instruments, and wrote and published original songs. Both parents, Johnson says, were very religious. They were Christians. They were Congregationalists, and Dr. Hemingway was a strict Sabbatarian too. They not only went to church on Sunday and said grace at meals, but according to Hemingway's sister, Sonny, Sonny, we had morning family prayers accompanied by Bible reading and a hymn or two. He grew up in a home with family devotions. And uh, he made up his mind as a young man. He wanted nothing to do with it. He despised it. He hated it. He wasn't going to submit his will to it. He had a lot in common with this guy Ahaz. When, here's the deal, guys, with our wills. When, when our wills get out of submission to God, uh, we're on a downward spiral. Al Mohler uh, has written an article. He's president of uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. Uh, he wrote a column recently talking about the entire issue of the homosexual marriage debate and the general collapse of sexual morality in our culture. And here's what Moeller writes. Peterum Sorokin, kind of a unique name, who was the founder of sociology at Harvard University, pointed to the regulation of sexuality as the essential first mark of civilization. Let me say that again, because you wouldn't hear this coming out of Harvard anymore, would you? Because Harvard 
has gone downhill, as Ahaz went downhill, and Hemingway went downhill, uh, what, what Harvard has done is done what Romans 1.18 describes. By the way, you know that Harvard was established as a school to prepare men for the gospel ministry, don't you? That was the purpose of Harvard, to be committed to the Word of God. Do you know that, many of the, that much of the endowment money that Harvard has has been given by evangelical Christians historically? That, that school was funded. But then they got away from the Scriptures and they got away from the Word of God. So then a group of men who were committed to the Scriptures said, we're going to establish a school that's going to stay true to the Word of God. So they started another school. And you know what they named that school? Yale. Yale was also a school that was started to equip men to become ministers to faithfully preach the Word of God. And they didn't take too long for Yale to go down the Romans 1.18 scale and slide, you see. So then decades later, some guys got together and said, we're going to, I'll tell you what, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna build a school in the Word of God that will never, never change. And they did. And you know what you call that school? <laughs> Princeton. But, but, but Baylor's sliding too, for the guy who mentioned Baylor. Uh, the majority of the Ivy League schools started out as Christian institutions. So it shouldn't surprise us that Sorokim said, the founder of sociology at Harvard, he pointed to the regulation of sexuality as the essential first mark of civilization. The regulation of sexuality. What are we trying to do with sexuality? We're trying to deregulate it. Now, you can do that with railroads. And you can do that with airlines. But you can't do it with sexuality because it has implications. According to Sorokin, Moeller writes, civilization is possible only when marriage is normative and sexual conduct is censured outside of the marital relationship. Furthermore, Sorokin traced the rise and fall of civilizations and concluded that the weakening of marriage was a first sign of civilizational collapse. It's Romans 1.18. We should also note that Sorokin made these arguments long before anything like homosexual marriage had been openly discussed. Sorokin's insight was the realization that civilization, now catch this, Sorokin's insight was the realization that civilization requires men to take responsibility for their offspring. This was possible, he was convinced, only when marriage was held to be the unconditional expectation for sexual activity and procreation. Once, individually, once individuals, especially males, are freed for sexual behavior outside of marriage, civilizational collapse becomes an inevitability. The weakening of marriage, even on heterosexual terms, has already brought a harvest of disaster to mothers and children abandoned in the name of sexual liberation. Great wisdom there. Great wisdom. When was this written? Uh, Moeller? Oh, Sorokin. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm going to say uh, 40 years ago. I'm guessing. Might be 50 years ago. Yeah, that's my guess. 40s, 50s, somewhere in there. Now, here, here's the point. We, we look at Ahaz. And one of the things that just is astonishing to me is that Ahaz would kill his own sons. Men kill their own sons and daughters every day in our culture. But there's no blood because they kill them emotionally. 
Recently, Mary and I had a conversation with two teenage girls uh, in our home. They both, uh, we've known them for several years. They both uh, come from families where um, their fathers and mothers have taken them to church, a church that teaches the Word of God. They've known the truth of the gospel since they were little children. Um, they, their family reads Christian books. They attend Christian seminars and Christian concerts, highly involved. Um, both of those girls in the last three to four months, both of them have experienced their Christian fathers abandoning their mother and them and taking up with another woman. And, um, and I'll tell you, these are precious girls, 18, 19 years old. And, and as they were talking to us, and see, they, they were good friends, but now they're really good friends because they're going through the same thing together. And as I was listening to them, what struck me was, um, first thing that struck me, I like to beat the crap out of their, out of their dads. That's the first thing that struck me. Um, just because I'm filled with the Spirit. I just, I just, that's, you know, and why did, and why did I feel that way? I'm not going to go punch some guy out, but wh wh why do you kind of want to? Because you know what? Quite frankly, he, he, wh wh what both those guys have done is they have killed those girls. Now, they both have a strong faith in Christ, and it was great to hear them talk about the Lord. They haven't been killed because the life of Christ is in them but they have been deeply betrayed. Deeply. And, and so what is it their dads are doing? Their dads are out there going after some chick who's got her boobs hanging out and got her cheeks hanging out of the short shorts, some babe. You know what I'm talking about? You know, their, their dads are 43, 45, 46, 47, you know. They, they, got, they got big Bibles they'd carry to church, you know. Sometimes, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. We had that conversation over the weekend with these two girls. And see, sometimes I think when I walk out of this study, I think, you know what? I sound like a broken record because I'm always talking about marriage. I'm always talking about staying committed to your wife. I'm always talking about not leaving. In fact, last week... When I was driving home, I felt like, you know, Farrar, those guys are going to quit coming because that's all they ever hear you say. You, you just, you got to get some other illustrations. You, you got to say some other things. And then I had, we, we had conversation with those two girls. And I thought, you know what? I can't wait to get back there Wednesday night. Because I'm going to pummel these guys and pummel myself. That you know what? See, we've legitimized killing children in America. Killing them emotionally. Uh, and, and no one wants to say this because no one wants to make anyone feel guilty. And let me tell you something. You walk out on your wife and you walk out on your kids, let me tell you something, pal. You're guilty. And you're wrong and you're in sin. Period. Now, you can't stop your wife from walking out on you. But you see, you don't do that. 
You don't do it. Somebody needs to stand up, and they need to be a man. Because, see, the problem is, and, and see, there's already been compromise. When a guy gets to that point and does that, there's already been significant compromise in his life. But do you think this compromise is going to stop at that point? No. No, it's going to continue and continue and continue. And what's going to happen is God is going to start making things very, very difficult and uncomfortable for you. He's going to hem you in. You say, well, how do you know that? Because that's what he always does to guys that live in rebellion to him that know the truth. Um, I'll prove it to you out of Ahaz's life. So we've just described this guy and all that he did and all the, the foolishness that took place in his life. Now notice verse 5. You guys still with me? See, I tried to come up with some jokes to, this afternoon, and I couldn't find any. Because, you know, you want to lighten it up here and there, and I, I don't have any jokes tonight. I really don't. But look at verse 5. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. Let me tell you what's going to happen here. What's going to happen is, here's this guy, big time, big shot king of Judah, all right? He's killing his kids. He's doing all this. He's got idolatry. And see, the idolatry included sexual immorality. So, so this guy is not going around wearing a, you know, a chastity ring on his neck. This guy is in all kinds of perversion. That was part of worshiping the idols. All right? So what happens is he's doing all this stuff, and is God just going to stand by? He's sitting on the throne of David. No. So here's what God does to this guy that thinks he's a big deal. He's going to bring in the king of Aram which is Syria, and he's also going to bring in the king of Israel from the north because Syria and Israel had made an alliance. We'll continue. And they defeated him, I'm in verse 5, and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hands of the king of Israel who inflicted him with heavy casualties. These two kings came in and just pummeled his nation. Because of the disobedience to God. Verse 6. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, slew in Judah, that's his country, 120,000 in one day. All valiant men because, why did they get so? Because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maseah, the king's son. Here's a son he didn't kill. But he got killed when the battle took place and he lost his life. Look at... Now, here's what's interesting. So what God does is God brings judgment to him because it is disobedience. If someone wants to walk in disobedience, if you think that God's just going to let you go without disciplining you, without closing you in, without making your life difficult, you're kidding yourself. You say, oh, yeah, well, I believe in grace. Well, good luck. Because there is grace, and there is mercy, and there is forgiveness. But forgiveness is based on something called repentance. This guy doesn't repent. Now, what you're going to see in verses 8 through 15, let me just, let me just summarize it for you. What happens is, they come in, uh, the king of the north, the guy from Israel, the guy from Syria, they come in, they, they just beat the tar out of Judah, they defeat them, and then they, they take all these women and kids, and they run them up north, and what they're going to do is, they're going to make them slaves. Now remember, this is Israel and Judah. This is the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes in the south. This is Israel. They're all from Abraham. 
So what they're going to do is they're going to take the people they've captured from the south and they're going to turn them into their slaves. But what happens is a prophet stands up in verse 9, a guy named Oded. And he basically says, he says, listen, behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. And you have slain them in a rage which has even reached heaven. And now you're proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves. Surely you have not transgressions of your own against the Lord your God. What he does is he confronts them and he says, you can't do this. These are your relatives. Now, you've got to understand something. At this point, the guys in the north were worse than the guys in the south. They had no leadership. For 20 kings, they had no leadership. But the prophet speaks, and you know what they did? <clears throat> they listened, and they obeyed. And what they did, instead of turning these people into slaves, what they did was, verse 15, they took the captives, they clothed, they clothed all the naked ones from the spoil, they gave them clothes and sandals, fed them and gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all the feeble ones on donkeys, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. They obeyed the word of God. Why is that story right in the middle here of Ahaz? Because Ahaz never did obey the word of God. The guys in the north, prophet speaks, they go, you know, we can't do this. This is wrong. They submitted their wills to God. Now, notice verse 16. The next thing it says, at that time, what time? The time these guys obeyed God and returned the captives. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. Did he turn to God and say, God, forgive me? God, I, I, I know the truth. My father taught me the truth. I know my history. I know the prophets. I have sinned greatly against you, and I ask you for your forgiveness, and I ask for your assistance. You've been so gracious to send those people back. I ask for your help. Did he do it? No. He turned to the king of Assyria. Verse 17. For again, the Edomites had come. Now, why did he turn to the kings of Assyria? Well, he'd been attacked from the north by Israel and Samaria. But then note, look at the judgment of God, how it continues. Verse 17, for again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah. Uh, who were the Edomites? They were the guys from the southeast. So he was attacked from the north, plus he was attacked now from the southeast. And then it says in verse 18, and the Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the Negev of Judah, and it tells you all the towns and villages they had taken. So the Edomites come from the southeast, and the Philistines come from the west. This guy's getting hit from every side, and it's all the judgment of God on him. So that he would listen and turn to God. Look at verse 19. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. Isn't that an interesting term? He brought a lack of restraint. What is it that fathers are to do for their children? They're to train up their children in the way that they should go. You see, when you train a child, what you do is you restrain a child. You channel a child. You teach a child to exist and to function within boundaries and within rules and within truth and within guardrails. But when there's no restraint... See, that's what you find in Romans 1. There's no restraint. Uh, and so when there's no restraint, a family goes down. When there's no restraint, a nation goes down. 
When there's no restraint, an individual goes down. I was really grateful that President Bush last night talked about abstinence, and he talked about the fact that we have this epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, and the one thing that has been proven that prevents sexual diseases from happening to a teenager is not having sex. And there was a certain group of people that stood and applauded. And there was another group who didn't. The group that didn't are reprobates. I don't care what party they belong to, they're reprobates. Because they don't believe in sexual restraint for teenagers, do they? But that's precisely what teenagers need. They need restraint. But they need a father to teach them who practices sexual restraint, don't they? Yeah. I'm not sure why he stepped down. I'm sure there was a I'm sure there's a psychological reason I stepped down briefly and then stepped back up. We'll analyze that later. So he goes and so he's got he's getting hit from every side, and there's no restraint in this guy's life. So you know what God's doing? God's bringing in these guys to restrain him, to discipline him. Uh, he makes his deal. He calls out to uh, Assyria for help. Look at verse 20. So Tilgath Pilneser, king of Assyria came against him, this is the guy he calls for help, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So he doesn't call out to God for help. You're going to call out to this guy? Guess what? This guy's not going to help you. This guy's going to afflict you. This guy's going to trouble you. So now it gets real interesting. Because I want you to see something here. God is trying to get through to this guy. God is trying to hem this guy in so that he'll turn and he'll repent. I'll jump ahead and I'll tell you something. I said this guy was the wickedest king in Judah. Um, he's right there in a toss-up with his grandson Manasseh. We'll look at Manasseh later. Manasseh went through all this stuff. But Manasseh got to a point where the judgment of God was all over him and he was getting attacked and he got carried off. And after 12 years of, of being in a dungeon, Manasseh repented. He repented. See, that's the guy was hemming this guy in. But this guy's will is so strong, he's not giving in. Um, now, here's what's going to happen. Instead of him repenting and turning to the Lord for help, this guy digs in deeper. He digs in his heels, and he is not going to submit to God, and he's going to commit three sins. The first sin you've already seen, uh, he reached out to Assyria. But then notice what it says. It says in 21, Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it didn't help him. You know what that means? He stole the money from the temple. He stole the treasures from the temple to pay this guy off as a bribe, and the guy wouldn't help him. Look at 22. Now, in this time of, of his distress, this same king Ahaz became, became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. Downward spiral. Here's the second sin. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, because the gods of the king of Aram help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. 
What does Romans says? Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. How foolish, how stupid is that? Flip over to 2 Kings to the left. Because 2 Kings gives us the same story, but it gives us a detail that isn't in uh, 2 Chronicles. In 2 Kings 16, we find out about Ahaz um, in verse 10. We find out that he made a trip. He goes to Damascus. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus. Why? To meet Tilglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So he goes and visits this guy. He's trying to make a deal. He's trying to get a, a, a consortium with this guy. So that's why he goes and travels and has this trip. Now, guess this. And watch this. And he saw the altar, which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz, this, this altar which they would worship false gods, okay? And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, what priest? The priest in the temple back at Jerusalem. He sent to Urijah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. He sends this, he thinks, this is really a neat altar. So he gets the blueprint and he sends it to the high priest in Jerusalem. So Urijah the priest built an altar. According to all that Ahaz had sent from Damascus, thus Urijah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and went up to it. So then you go back to 23. See, he's sacrificing to the gods on an altar that he copied from this foreign king. Now, you know what's amazing to me? He sent the blueprints to the, to the priest, and guess what the priest did? The priest said, okay. Do you remember Uzziah? We studied Uzziah. Uzziah went in to the temple. He went in to offer sacrifice of incense. And when he did that, the high priest didn't invite him in. The high priest confronted him. Azariah the priest and the other priest confronted the king with the word of God. But do you see how far down the nation had gone? Even the priest had given up. Even the priest refused to honor the Lord. Even the priest had given up the truth. If you're not back there yet, go back to Second Chronicles again. So his first sin is he seeks out the king for help. Secondly, he begins to worship the false idols. Um... And the Bible says in verse 23, they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Let me tell you what else he did. I think his third sin, and it has to do with the priest. I think, I think he intimidated those around him by the power of his personality and by his position of authority. Uh, not only did he delight in the things that he was doing, but he encouraged them as well. And, and, and see, this, 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 this priest was a yes man. This priest was a follower. This priest was not a man of courage. This priest was not a man of integrity. Um, now, can we say this? Can we say this? Um, let's give him credit. He was, making, he was making sacrifices. Let's give him credit. He was making sacrifices. He was, uh, he was worshiping. Hey, let me tell you something. When you've got 
Christian denominations. When you've got an Episcopalian bishop who's a homosexual and he's offering the cup and the bread, that's blasphemy. That's, bl that's what was happening here. It's blasphemy. All, all this stuff starts with small sin. I mean, you read this and you just shake your head. How do these guys get, how do they get there? You know what I'm convinced? Is that people that know the truth just don't suddenly jump into extreme, flagrant, blasphemous sin. It starts with small sin. Think about the Episcopalian Church for a minute. Or, or think about any other denomination. Or think about Harvard. Or think about Yale. Or think about Princeton. Or think about what, what we've seen happen in our day and age in the Southern Baptist Convention. Where you would, uh, you would have churches that believe the word of God. And they had the, the program and the offerings. And which would support the seminaries. And you had these people back in Nacogdoches, you know, loving the Lord Jesus and loving the Word, and they're sending money to seminaries, and these young men are going into the seminaries, and these younger men are being taught that Paul really didn't write Ephesians. And they're, they're being taught that Adam and Eve weren't real historical figures. And they're being taught that Jonah really wasn't an historical figure. That was just a, a, a type, just a metaphor. Really, what, really wasn't a person that existed, you see. How does, this start? How does all this stuff start? Well, it starts, see, what, what happens is somebody starts departing from the truth. And it's small, and it's a little inconsequential, and it's this, and it's that. Um, where's my other article? I, I, I won't take the time to read it because I'm out of time. It's right here in front of me. Um, there's a syndicated columnist, Geneva Overholzer, who believes that evangelical churches will eventually approve of homosexual unions. And you know what? She's right. She's absolutely right. She is. Because you see, what happens in a church, it starts with small sin. It starts with, it starts with departing from the truth. It starts with not declaring the whole counsel of God. It starts with editing the Bible. Give me two quotes, all right? Daniel Cadre said this, As a man may die as well by a fly choking him as by a lion devouring him, so likewise little sins will sink a man to hell as soon as great sins. So you see, why'd you read that quote? Well, because um, I, don't any, I don't think there's anybody in here that has uh, sacrificed your children in the fire. And I, I doubt if there's anybody in here that's, um, you know, worshiping at, uh, uh, in churches with homosexual pastors. And all. That's not going on here. See, so we can look at that and say, thank God I'm not there. That's right. Thank God we're not there. But you know what? The little sins can get you just as quickly as big sin. You can die by having a lion devour you, but you can also die by choking on a fly. So what does Proverbs say? It says, guard your heart. Watch over your heart. For from it flows the wellsprings of life. Thomas Watson said, Little sins unrepented of will damn thee as well as greater sins. Not only great rivers fall into the sea, but the little brooks as well. Not only greater sins carry men to hell, but lesser. 
Therefore, do not think pardon easy because sin is small. Remember the two teenage girls I talked about? Their dads were the kind of guys, I'm stepping down here because I want to make a point. Their dads were the kind of guys who would be here on a Wednesday night. And three years ago, it never ever would have crossed their mind that they would be at the place in life today that they find themselves. How did they get there? I think by small compromises. Um, I wonder where I'll be in three years. And I close with this. I, I, I think I mentioned to you guys in the fall, I was out at Mount Hermon teaching, doing a conference. And I began, as I was teaching, I began to remember how many guys I had heard teach in that pulpit who had had an influence on me. And then I began to ask myself, where are those guys today? They never would have dreamed they would be where they are today. Not preaching the gospel, but they become motivational speakers. Because the gospel doesn't mean anything to them anymore. They're great speakers. Let me tell you something. Great speakers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. But men that are committed to Christ and yielded to him and have submitted their will to him, those are the men God blesses. Where are you going to be in three years? Where are you going to be in ten years? Let's watch our hearts, guys. Let's not kill our kids. Let's not be stupid. Let's be wise. And let's live our lives to the glory of God. To the glory of God. What is it that you want to hear Jesus say when you stand before him? Well done. Well done. Why don't we stand and let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we grieve over this man Ahaz in his life. It, it is such a waste, such an unnecessary waste. Um, he wasn't buried with honor. He wasn't buried with the honorable kings. Because his life didn't warrant that. They couldn't say to him, well done. They were ashamed of him. They were embarrassed. They, they were so glad he was gone. As people in Iraq are so glad that Saddam Hussein is gone. So the people in Judah were so glad when Ahaz was gone. Now Lord, it's true, we're still writing our biographies every day. We're making choices. We're making decisions. We have our public life that people see. We have our private life that no one knows about. Just you and us know about that. We, we want to serve you, Lord, when we're out of the public eye. And we want to serve you when we're not with people. We want to submit our wills to you when we're by ourselves. 
We, we want to serve you, Lord, when we're on a business trip out of town away from our wives and our friends. We, we want to serve you when we are uh, in our offices late at night and everyone's asleep and we're sitting at the computer. We want to give glory to you by our lives. Uh, help us, Lord, to protect our hearts and save us from ourselves, we pray. And I pray, Lord, that uh, when we see sin in our hearts, that we would deal with it and bring it before you and acknowledge it and admit it and confess it and turn from it and receive your forgiveness. We want to hear you say, well done. And we pray these things and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.